0: Hey everybody, welcome to Emmaus Way. My name is Dan Rhodes, and I'm one of the ministers here. It's good to see all of y'all out tonight. Uh, what a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous weekend we had. Um, a few of us got to go up from pub group. Uh, Dave invited us up to the lake yesterday. Man, it was just peaceful and beautiful, and water was a little chilly, but really enjoyable. Um, anyway, uh, for those of you that are, oh, Caleb and Lindsay, congratulations. It's great to have you back with us. Thank yeah. you. Uh, Caleb and Lindsay were married two weeks ago uh, and uh, have just rejoined us. Welcome back. It's good to have you. Um, for those of you that don't know much about Emmaus Ware, this is your first time visiting us. We're a community of folks who are gathered uh, in the name of Christ to celebrate the table, to listen to one another, uh, discuss the text, to interpret text together, to listen for God's voices in our, or God's voice in our midst. Um, and we're a group of people who are committed to seeing where God is at work in our world, um, with emphasis here in Durham and our local city and the county, um, and seeing how we might participate in that work, how we can collectively jump in and uh, be involved in what God is doing. So, welcome uh, here with us tonight. We're really excited to have you. Um, if you are new with us, please grab a card. There are yellow cards out here kind of in the basket. Um, if you want some, to meet with somebody, either one of our ministers or uh, want to get to know a little bit more about the home groups that we have going on, uh, you can look for the email addresses on our website. Um, there are a couple boxes to check out there if you want to meet with folks, but please uh, look there for that information, and hopefully we'll connect with you soon. We have a number of things that go on throughout the week. I had mentioned in briefly kind of our home groups that meet throughout the week if you're interested in joining up with one of those. um, Elizabeth Eford back here in the back is uh, the person to contact if you're looking for her email address. It's on the website. You can connect with her there, mayasway.net. Also, we have a pub group that meets on Thursday evenings at 8.15ish, and we gather at Bull McCabe's, which is right here uh, kind of in downtown just off of Main Street, Um, and we gather there, like I said, at 8.15. We talk about economics, politics, theology, Sometimes we just catch up with one another, read the news, and kind of talk about what's going on. Um, It's a good time. You're welcome to come. Um, If you want to get on the email list for that, please see me. I can connect you with our Google group, um, and we send out a uh, a reading usually every week that we kind of start the conversation with or never get to uh, a lot or whatever. So um, if you're interested in that. Um, And that's pretty much kind of come as you are, come whenever you want to. Uh, It's kind of an open invitation. We have a number of things, well not a number of things, we have a couple things going on this week. Um, one is that if you're interested in what Durham CAN is doing, uh, tomorrow actually at 9 a.m. we have a meeting with the county commissioners. Um, one of the things that we've been working on or are continuing to work on in, uh, in the city and in the county is connecting a lot of the resources for seniors in our community as well as people uh, that, who have kind of physical disabilities or mental disabilities. Um, And we're working with the county to create a position, a person in the county. We already got $20,000 from the federal government um, to fill this position. And we're trying to raise $20,000 more from the county to fill this position of a coordinator to connect all of those things for seniors and for people with mental and uh, physical disabilities. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, I think... I'm going to be there tomorrow, and I think maybe Josh is going to be there tomorrow at 9 a.m., but we, we committed to having three, so we are looking for one more person. If you're interested, please see myself or Josh. Um, and then we also have a meeting with the city uh, um, council on Wednesday uh, at 9 a.m. as well, and that will be in the second level of city hall, um, and that is to discuss um, things around transportation that are, go- that are coming into Durham, um, and specifically around affordable housing. So, if you're interested in affordable housing issues in Durham, and you think you might be want to know more about that, wh- this meeting is basically working with TTA and the City Council to a, a joint meeting with the City Council and with the uh, the County Planning Group to think about how transit's moving into the area and how we might create some affordable housing around. Uh, the terminals for that transit system so uh, i think tim has said he's going to head to that and maybe josh as well but once again we committed to three people so if you're interested in that i think we do still need one more person for that and that's wednesday morning at nine i know that doesn't work for everybody but um, if you're interested please uh, see one of us and we'll get you uh, connected there Um, are there any more announcements anything that i'm forgetting or didn't didn't catch Okay. Well, welcome tonight. It's great to have you with us. Brett, it's great to have you back with us, man. It's always good to see you. Thanks for joining us tonight. Good to uh, be here. And I got a peek at the song list for the song set, and I'm really, really excited about it tonight. So, welcome. It's good to see you all.
1: There's just one catch with that. I talked to talk to Josh earlier this week about what we're discussing tonight and, and the con- conversation turns towards uh, protest songs. A lot of those songs are just three chords and the truth. And so... You know they're rallying songs and songs that are to be sung as a community so that means singing all of us everyone all right and a couple of these songs are um, might be new to you they might might not be, but they're easy. that's the other great thing about protest songs so this one is uh, one of my favorites) but... Oh, it's Jesus Christ, our president, God above our king, with a job and pension. Way up in the capital town. The USA. Beyond the way. Prosperity even Oh, it's Jesus Christ our president. God above our king. With the job and pension from young and old we Make- I'm all washed in the blood. i
2: It's good to see everybody today. Hey, I want to give you an opportunity to stand and greet the people who are around you. If you're around somebody that you don't know, certainly introduce yourself, uh, offer each other the peace of Christ, uh, and uh, we will reconvene here in a couple moments and jump into uh, a dialogue uh, and well-chosen movie. Uh, I didn't know a whole lot about Dorothy Day, but uh, the, I think she would have definitely agreed with the set list today. So uh, stand up and greet each other. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> so I am... Um, Looking forward to this continuation of the summer series that we began last week. But I realized last, last week was the Memorial Day version of Emmaus Way, which meant like there was a lot less of us. In fact, the contrast the week before to Memorial Day was pretty pretty uh, pretty markets. So if you are hearing this for the second time, apologies, but I'm also aware that a lot of us did, didn't kind of hear this series begin. So let me just give you a little bit of a framing of where we're going this summer. Uh, We've lovingly entitled this, I think actually Josh entitled it, uh, Mystics, Dreamers, and Heretics. And so we are going to um, each week kind of ponder typically the life of a specific person, And so that person's life will be in some way our text, even though we will certainly wander as we will tonight in and out of a multiple uh, variety of biblical text, but it will be a person or a specific community um, that we will look at. We're kind of accumulating a list of this. And by the way, it's not hard at all to find a list of, of mystics and dreamers and heretics that are worthy of our attention. But what we're interested in is that these are persons who um, ask us to cross safe boundaries. All of us, no matter what our faith looks like, no matter what communities look like, we tend to craft space that becomes our normal space, the place that we play, the place that we enjoy relationships. And these are the type of persons and communities that push us outside of that safe space and ask us to consider society. Our faith, the work of God from a different perspective. Now, as I look around the room, there's probably plenty of you in this room that have played that role of either a mystic or a dreamer or a heretic to some. Uh, I made the point that for those of you who are artists or musicians, uh, this may be your normal job description is in some ways to consider uh, realities that folks don't see from a different angle, so to speak. And so these are going to be women and men or communities that remind us that um, that faith is an adventure. It's a risk. It's something that is uh, not always kind of the normal expectation. And I look forward to uh, kind of going through this. We have a great list kind of brewing up for the summer. Uh, Jesse wrote me with a good idea. I, had, I was serious about that last week. Of If you have an idea or someone that we should consider doing this summer, uh, it's not too late to give me a shout on that. But we're looking forward to doing this. It's going to be a good series. So thank you to Josh or who of the others in town text group that kind of helped cook this up. But tonight, uh, we're going to look at Dorothy Day, who is a... um a a, a Catholic activist, uh, uh, was the founder of the uh, Catholic Worker Journal. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a story. How many people, and I'm going to ask at the end of this, I'll give you the encyclopedia uh, from the Catholic encyclopedia version of her life, uh, because I I confess to you that Dorothy Day in my seminary days was well outside. She was a heretic dreamer and mystic that uh, they were probably hopeful that we didn't ever hear. Uh, I know that, that that's not the case at Duke, but how many of you guys are familiar with her? Brandon, I'm counting on you. You, Is is this in your sweet spot in terms of...
3: I I taught her this. There we go. So
2: I knew that. (laughs) So this will be the dime version, but at the end of this, after this very short version, Brandon and others, I'm going to ask... uh, throw us some other relevant things that, that, uh, because I have not studied her a lot, I've heard her referred often to in IF circles and Durham CAN and things like that, but I'm no expert on this. So let me give you the thumbnails version of of her life. this is an interesting woman uh, in almost every way. She has lived a full and dramatic life. Her, her lifespan was 1897 to 1980, so uh, she has, has been uh, departed not that long. And it's interesting. She is uh, part of a fairly dramatic debate going on right now. She's being moved toward canonization uh, and to become a saint, and there are some that are uncomfortable with that, but there are many that are recommending that. So she could be St. Dorothy, Uh, very easily in in our lifetime. Um, But here's some stuff about her life. Um, She was born um, in a journalist family in Brooklyn, New York. Um, Ended up with her family surviving the San Francisco earthquake, but she started in kind of middle class, uh, educated circles. But she ended up quite poor. Her family was ruined by that. She ended up back in Chicago and uh, and in many ways this step down in her life was significant because she was very aware of um, of the reality of lives that were not in the kind of middle class norm. So she kind of lived on both sides of the fence, if you will. Um, but eventually her her father was appointed the sports editor of a Chicago newspaper. They moved into a comfortable home on the north side so there they were kind of in Cubs territory in in Chicago. But she started reading, and this is a pretty big theme in her life. Uh, She was reading actually Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which was in many ways inspired of life in South Chicago. And she did something that was pretty interesting. She began to walk those neighborhoods, having reading the jungle, and she began to take long walks, and it was a start of a lifelong attraction for her of people whose lives we typically avoid. Uh, Jim Thomas, you'll recognize in that story. Isn't it interesting? Uh, Jim could tell another story of, of uh, Beacon of Hope, which was an organization that was deeply connected with Africa Rising, and it actually started the very same way. Actually. Uh, uh, well, Jane Wathome who was a seminarian in um, in Kenya and a very, very wealthy woman gated community husband was, a, you know, that, and she did what people weren't supposed to do in that social situation is she started walking the slums of, of Nairobi and was encountering, encountering women who were dying of AIDS and that led to the development of Beacon of Hope it's a, that, that's another great story to tell at some point in time but very similar to what Dorothy Day was doing and one of the things that was interesting about her is she had a gift for finding beauty in the midst of urban desolation. Drab streets were transformed by pungent odors, uh, geranium, tomato plants, garlic, olive oil, roasting coffee, breads and rolls, and bakery ovens. And she said, here, there's absolutely enough beauty to satisfy me. Um, She was a scholar, Uh, she won a scholarship to the University of Illinois in 1914, Um, but she was a reluctant scholar. But again, once again, she started reading and her reading in her collegiate days was the beginning of her path of becoming radicalized. Um, And she began to see the world in a different way. Um, She worked for a magazine called The Masses, which opposed America's involvement in the European war. And when I say European war, you got that right, World War I, <laughs> so not even World War two at this point, but uh, she was opposed to that and um, in in um in government response to this, uh, the post office rescinded the magazine's mailing permit. Federal officers seized back issues, manuscripts, subscriber lists, and correspondence. Uh, five editors of the magazine were charged with sedition. So her kind of anti-war posture around World War I was not well received and was, uh, had a, a strong kind of governmental reaction to this. Um, and her conviction was that the social order was unjust. And uh, she lived with that conviction of trying to change the social order to something that was more just, uh, without alignment to any political party, but her life was oriented in that way. Uh, In November 1917, she went to prison for being one of 40 women arrested in front of the White House. For protesting women's exclusion from the electorate. Uh, Arriving in a a rural workhouse, the women were uh, roughly handled, Uh, they responded with a hunger strike, they were finally freed by presidential order. So at a very young age in her life, not only did she practice civil disobedience, but she was arrested and suffered consequences for that. Um, Her religious development was actually something that was fairly slow in her life. Um, But she was fascinated by the Catholic Church. And the thing that fascinated her about the catholic church was that she saw it as a church of immigrants and of the poor and her concern was that she did not see christian communities that deeply concerned and this was well before the depression with the lives of people who were who were not in the mainstream and that's what began to draw her into uh the catholic church uh these were this is a good quote by her she said that worship adoration thanksgiving and supplication these were the noblest acts of which we're capable in this life. And so she began developing as a radical, but also a woman of prayer, and somebody who was deeply aligned with the the Catholic Church. Um, Around 1924, she began a four-year relationship with a botanist that she'd met in Manhattan, Um, but um, he was an anarchist who opposed both marriage and religion, and uh, this was a relationship that that did not... uh, did not last very long. In fact, one of the... um the greatest kind of pains in her life that she spoke of is that she had had a child uh, in a previous relationship uh, or, or got pregnant and had an abortion. And that was one of her great fears, is that she would never be able to have a child again. But she got into this relationship, she got pregnant, uh, which was not um, uh, to the liking of her partner, but she kept this child, but he left her for, for keeping the child. So she experienced some really significant pain in, in that manner. And this child was was deeply significant with her uh, in her life. Um, So this is kind of how her life kind of began. And that's how her her relationship ended. And I I don't hear of any other descriptions of relationships uh, before joining the church. Um, but her life was changed uh, with uh, a, relate- a friendship with a French immigrant who, uh, who challenged her ultimately to, uh, to start a newspaper, to publicize Catholic social teachings, and to promote steps in which peaceful transformation of the society could happen. And by this point in time, probably the most controversial thing in her life, uh, and many of you would confer with this, is she'd become a pacifist. And her pacifism was not well received uh, in religious circles, in, um, in social circles, in her social class, even among the educated people that she uh, worked with. So she did this, she followed this advice. She uh, published The Catholic Worker uh, on May 1st. I think this is, uh, I forget the date. Uh, Brandon, you'll have to fill that in for me, uh, but, uh, but she... They started doing this, and the Catholic worker took off, and in, in what they thought might be a thousand copies or a couple thousand copies, it began uh, a readership around uh, 100,000 readers. And what was unique about it, and there weren't many examples of this, is it was radical and religious at the, at the same time, and so um, that, was, that was how she began uh, kind of uh, developing a life of, of notoriety, and as one would expect, The principles of the Catholic worker that were printed uh, were then put to the test. People began to to engage people who were reading this, publishing this, kind of part of this movement, and said, in what way uh, would do you embody the things that you are writing about? And so uh, it it didn't take uh, very long for the Catholic worker to become an embodied movement. By 1936, there were 33 uh, Catholic worker communities uh, around the country. And so she started developing these very specific communities. And one of the things that's really interesting about them is that they practiced a very radical hospitality, is that they received people into their communities Communities and expected no aspect of reform. The only way that you would have attached it to some sort of Christian thing is that there were crucifixes on the wall, but people could come and stay in whatever condition that brought them there literally forever. Uh, There was no demand that they change their life in any way, form, or fashion. And so uh, this is a couple of things that she would say. Uh, uh, These weren't the deserving poor. It was sometimes objected. But drunkards and good-for-nothings are the people that came there. A visiting social worker asked Day how long the clients were permitted to stay. And she answered, We let them stay forever. They live with us, they die with us, we give them a Christian burial, we pray for them after they're dead. Once they are taken in, they become members of the family, or rather, they always were members of the family, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Some justified their objections with biblical quotations. Didn't Jesus say the poor would be with us always? And yes, they once replied, but we are not content that there would be so many of them. The class structure structure is our making and by our consent, not God's. We must do what we can to change it. We are urging revolutionary change. And so that became her life posture. They received people in. They worked for social change. They worked for change of the class system. Uh, People were received in these communities and were never rejected. Um, And again, um, it was her reading of uh, Peter's put away your sword for whoever lives by the sword shall perish by the sword which uh, kind of fomented her pacifism which really got her in trouble Uh, this was uh, noted around World War I, but as World War II began, this became a much, much more significant issue. Um, the Spanish Civil War started; those of your historians know around 1936. And part of the fascist side of the the Spanish Civil War was it had a Catholic edge to it and a support to the Catholic Church. And so there were a lot of folks that were very pro uh, uh, war in that in that setting. But she refused to it, and and very prophetically said, "Look what's happening in Nazi." Germany now, and this is in 1936, and began to speak out about uh, about uh, uh, Catholics who were not. Uh, Supporting the Jews and the anti-Semitism that was deeply rooted in Catholicism. She was saying that around 1936. And when the war began, the U.S. When after Pearl Harbor. um, The people that were a part of the Catholic worker communities either uh, did not participate in the war or they took roles like medics and support and that sort of thing. And of course, there were many, many people who disagreed with that. The uh, Catholic worker communities kind of diminished. Some got smaller at that point in time. Uh, But interestingly, what got her kind of on the wrong side of a law again is that in the 1950s, World War II had bled into the Cold War. And it seemed like uh, America was going to be perpetually in the posture of at least rattling its sword or preparing for warfare. And her community and under her leadership, they refused to participate. This seems kind of silly now. Uh, did, you, do you remember those images of uh, Civil War defense drills? Do you remember like the first graders and second graders for fear of nuclear attack. You know, hiding under a, a, a little desk <laughs> as if that would have protected them. But New York City's civil uh, defense drills were deemed something that was incredibly significant. But her communities refused to participate in civil defense drills and and actually protested them. Uh, the very first year they did this, they were reprimanded. The next year, Day and others were sent to jail for five days. The very next year, they were jailed for 30 days and ultimately sent back to prison. Uh, the following year, but only for five years. So this became a regular posture of protesting uh, these, um, these kind of civil uh, defense drills. Um, at this point in time, in the 50s, as you well know, this, the um, civil rights movement had begun to kick up, and the Catholic worker community was very involved in the, the civil rights movement. Um, so this was, in some ways, her life. Uh, A quote here, probably there's never been a newspaper so many of whose editors have been jailed for acts of conscience. Day herself was last jailed in 1973 for taking part in a banned picket line in support of farm workers, and she was 75. Now, as I mentioned, her accomplishments over the last stages of her life began to be noted by many. Uh, She was, uh, uh, Mother Teresa traveled to visit her and pinned her dress with the crucifix normally worn by the members of the Missionary Societies of Charity she was asked to receive communion from the, the Pope's on hand several times. Uh, but this is a final good closing quote. Long before her death on November 29, 1980, Day found herself regarded by many as a saint. Uh, no words of hers are better known than her brusque response. Don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed so easily. Nonetheless, having herself treasured the memory and witness of many saints, she is a candidate for the inclusion in the calendar of saints. Uh, One of her life quotes was this, and I love this. If I have achieved anything in my life, she once remarked, it's because I have not been embarrassed to talk about God. So, a radical, a woman who was associated with kind of a socialist, communist response in America that was very strong in the 20s and 30s, uh, a woman who, uh, in fact, one of her moments of crisis was that she was found herself so aligned with uh, Marxist principles, though the, the, the Marxism at that point was opposed to Christianity, that she felt herself as a deep crossroads, and she was in many ways a bridge person to that. So, that's a summary of one article, but let me throw it to Brandon or some of you guys before we ask a few questions on this those of you who know Dorothy Day well what else would you say about her? Thank you, Mayor Man. Other, those of you who are kind of in the know, anybody, anything else that I, you'd want to point out that I did? Yeah, just. They've been together about four years, and I think you're exactly right. The baptism of her child was one of the most significant moments. Uh, She really wanted her child not to flounder and struggle like she'd struggled. She wanted her to be rooted in faith and rooted in a faith community. But I appreciate you saying that because I read, not being super familiar with her until this week, I read a variety of articles, kind of like the one that I kind of summarized, and there was a strong sense of things being sanitized along the way. I mean, it reported her abortion earlier, but her life was clearly much more complicated than the report there, so I appreciate you throwing that out. Others? that might want to add uh, a little bit to her biography. Then I'm going to turn some questions back your way. Tim, one thing that I think I remember from engaging a little
0: bit before the day, not personally, but like reading. Um, 1980. That, like, she's this radically hospitable <laughs> person in, in engaging with, you know, folks, but she's also not very nice. <laughs> she has this I think, I think there were a few stories of like people coming, you know, people from upper class backgrounds that get interested in the Catholic worker movement and kind of want to come spend time and do literary kind of type of impact and she's like, get the hell out of here, I don't need you type of engagements. Mm-hmm. And so it's this kind of like very rough figure as well, but also very hospitable at the same time. So I think in some sense like she's a saint, but she's almost not saintly at all. And the way that we typically think of saints is holier-than-thou people that are just nice to
2: everybody. They're like Methodists. <laughs> <laughs> and I, what we were talking about this earlier this week, I remember the image of, you may have seen this before, uh, Mother Teresa standing between um, Bill Clinton and who would have been the British head of state at that point in time, Margaret Thatcher. And you know, here's this elderly saint standing there and she looked at both of these heads of states in the eye and said, uh, you know, would you stop aborting babies? Uh, I'll take your babies. You know, and here you've got Bill Clinton and uh, and maybe Margaret Thatcher kind of just kind of squirming. And there's Mother Teresa, humble, you know, just crumpled, older woman kind of saying – I don't take crap from either of you guys because I appeal to a, a kind of a higher authority. And I remember watching that going, oh my goodness, they just don't normally. I mean, they're used to being called out on the Sunday television talk shows when they're not there, but not when they're at the the dais, you know, standing right beside them. And words like brusque and rough, and I, I tell you, uh, there's a sense of, uh, and I want us to wrestle with this, all of us feel like we need to engage things like this. But people who do work on the more radical edge uh, sometimes have great difficulty kind of wandering around the sentimental do-getters that kind of get in their way. And so uh, that would have been um, um, a, a good, uh, a, a kind of a good relational point. So Brandon, I'm going to put you on the spot. Give us one factor, one sense of, of her life that... That you would have taught, that you and found. Was-
3: Jesse's point was what first came to my mind. I do think the baptism, and then because Tamar was baptized, she felt that she needed to be baptized so that she could be a proper mother to her. So it's interesting that it's her daughter's birth and then the baptism of her daughter that brings her into actually deciding to be baptized. And then that is what triggers, I think, the, the break with Forrester, with the common law husband. Um, so biographically, but I was just thinking about that, you know. The, Theologically or in terms of mystics, you know, the theme of loneliness that the book is named after um, is something that connects her to so many others, both in the 20th century and in the early modern period, right? And so think of Mother Teresa, um, who, you know, since she's passed, her letters have been made public and wrestled, as you probably know, for 30 years with with the silence of God or her experience of loneliness, right, with only very brief respite. Um, so serious, serious doubts and serious inability to sort of really feel God's presence. And that was Mother Teresa. And, you know, it's common to Simone Vale, who I think is another similar character in the 20th century who rides um, sort of the line between the church and society and wrestled with loneliness and solitariness and silence and hearing from God. Um, and, but then all the way back to Teresa of Avila, right, and to, to Augustine, who kind of sets that pattern in writing these spiritual autobiographies. So I think that's important, you know, in the title, and as she wrestles her whole life, even as we see it, the outward sort of works of faith and works of obedience, um, the inward experience of loneliness or solitariness, and, and those two things not necessarily being um, uh, at odds, right, the solitariness can be
2: I love having a religious historian... In the community, I think we should pass an eternal edict that there has to be at least one historian in the community at all times. Which means, Brandon, you just have to get tenure and distinguished (laughs) faculty member, and all those things, and get a building named after you at Carolina uh, or or something like that. But thank you for that. And those are really good connections. Um, Let me throw her life at you, obviously. And I I think maybe, uh, yeah. One second, one of the things that I think would be. worthwhile as part of this is that uh, I've just started reading a few biographies, and I I, I confess that that's not something that's been a big part of my palate, and wow, there's powerful things that I don't want to see or hear that come to us very viscerally in biographies. So yes, Mary, Man. Yeah, thank you. That's a very good point. I think one of the things that we we tend to theologize in our lives is how God is doing is how our life is going. And I don't think she would have in any way embraced that point. Let me ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you to, having heard this abbreviated story, I want to ask you how it strikes you. I'll give you an example Of how it struck me. And if I read it next week, it might strike me in an entirely different way. But one of the lessons that I've learned painfully over the last 20 or 30 years, and this is somebody who's done ministry since they were 23 years old, so I'm 28 years in, is one of the things that a spiritual director said to me very pointedly, um, a friend of mine, Phil Anderson, about 10 years ago, is he said, Tim, your life is often marked by giving things out that come from voids in your own life. In other words, you're you're not a person who has a, a closet full of 20s and then you reach in and grab a $20 bill and throw it out at somebody. It's actually where your closet in your life is a void, where you have absences in relationship. It seems like your life is always marked by responding to that void, by trying to give it to someone else. And it creates a lot of pain because it's much easier to... For in my sake to kind of be in community when I've experienced it so much in my life, but that's never been my experience up until uh, later years. And so as I was hearing her story, I was like, wow, that really strikes me that that's not that uncommon because we look at this woman trying to find rootedness in the church, baptizing her daughter, trying to find hope, uh, very inspired by the the, the, the social justice Um economic justice message of communism but not being very rooted in that 1930s communism that was very anti-God. So let me throw this at you right now. What are elements of her story that strike your life in any way, form, or fashion uh, in terms of life, risk, practice, economic, any of those things? Uh, What strikes you uh, in terms of your own uh, life of faith or struggle to find faith that, that comes from the telling of this story? I'd love to hear from a couple of you.
4: Tim, I felt really convicted that, um, which happens to me a lot when we talk to people who are really inspired by wanting to work for social justice. I feel like often my um, perspective is so limited by my family and my immediate, you know, circumstances. even registered her, like she had this vision for something that was so outside of the locus of family. It was so focused on other people and, you know, desires of her heart in terms of what the world should be doing, how she should help her neighbor, you know, how we should interact with each other on a country-to-country level. These are really big ideas, and for someone to sort of focus their life on looking at those issues is really convicting to me. And not in a sort of way where I feel like I want to, like, say bye, Will, I'm going to, like, you know, check tomorrow to go do something bigger with my life, but it just kind of reminds me that sometimes our perspectives are really limited by just kind of going through the day-to-day motions of life, and, yeah, I just felt like it was inspiring to think yeah. about that.
2: The hospitality that she described was remarkable. Receiving people for the whole of their lives without any expectation that change would come. I mean, that's, and while also trying to change society, is remarkable. Frightening as well. Yeah, Elizabeth. You know, and what remi- that comment reminds me of something that she held on to those experiences. The other thing is she held on to certain biblical texts with an ironclad grip. She read things like, if you do it unto the least of them, you do it unto me, and there was no negotiation of that text. Her life was formed around that. The text that I read about the the, the sword and uh, laying down the sword. These were things that for her, she read those, and it gave her no option whatsoever uh, for in regards to warfare or hostility. And so, it's remarkable how much those experiences and those texts galvanized her her life. It's, it pushed her to a radical edge. Yeah, trigger. I'm <laughs> on It's amazing, it's amazing the level of resistance uh the, the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s and the Dorothy Days and the people like that have experienced in our society, how deeply they were marginalized and how deeply they were feared, and only in retrospect, because sometimes our lives are working for the justice of 20 years ago rather than right now. Luke.
0: <laughs> and, and I think that one of the reasons is
5: is that she didn't she didn't care what the people in this room thought, right? Um, she was she was driven by, by by something something other and something bigger, and it was really frustrating um, to have somebody who would take you know my work of, of English art and and you know and give it a bad grade. Um, <laughs> me and and what i think yeah and and that's um you know for 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 the people sitting in this room i think that's that's hard to swallow
2: absolutely I remember the stories and one of my greatest regrets in seminary was we were uh, in Boston and we could take uh, classes at any of the schools in Boston and all of them were seminaries BU, BC, Harvard, all those things and a person we mention a lot around here, Henry Nowen was teaching his class Dynamics of the Spiritual Life at Harvard and for some reason I thought it might have been a little too far to drive down there or something silly like that and you know Henry Nowen is in many ways the, the teddy bear of the Christian spirituality until you read his autobiographies, and there was a man who experienced phenomenal pain in in lots of ways but he was one of those people who didn't want a comfortable class. He thought spirituality involved practice and risky practice and those two things were not to be sentimentalized and I remember uh, classmates taking his class. He was very involved in the uh, the protest and the work in Central America during the time. And if you can remember, most of you weren't born, but places like El Salvador and Nicaragua and uh, Honduras were one of the best places in the world to get killed in the 1980s. And his class, this happened a couple of times, is he would show up and they would start to talk spiritually about injustice in Central America. And, and he was down there all the time and he said, I think we need to see. He taught a Tuesday Thursday class and he said I think that we need to be a little less abstract on this in Thursday and so I've got a, an airline ticket right here and I need someone to fly down to El Salvador and meet with the resistant group and tell us what the government is doing right now. And and so This will require that you run to your room and pack a bag, and you're leaving in three hours out of Logan. Who would like to go? And to the positive nature of that class. At least five or six hands raised, you know, and he would pull a name out of the hat. He would say, uh, Sarah, um, we will see you on Thursday having returned from El Salvador. Uh, You probably will not have slept and you do not have time to call all of your professors and in a upper middle class kind of way, make sure that your coursework's done. You need to get to the airport and someone would go. But it was one of his ways of saying, we're not just crapping around here. This is something. Thing that matters, and I think for all of us, we struggle. I do. We struggle with a faith that can be sentimental, or abstract, or privatized. It's just me and my thing with God. And if God and I are cool, then who cares? Uh, and people like Dorothy Day and Luke's professor make us deeply uncomfortable with that concept. And I think we desperately need it. One more person, a reaction. Sure, Jesse. Yeah, and Jesse laden in that comment, and I'm glad you said this because I had it in my notes and I just didn't get to it, was this idea that, and and we talk about this all the time, Dan, your, your preaching life has been significant in this realm, when we say the word economics and we say the word politics... We often think partisan. We often think, you know, uh, some sort of dialogue where both sides never really meet. They're just kind of words flowing out somewhere. But people like Dorothy Day and the Henry Nowens and a whole range of people were, would be people that would say that the gospel is actually nothing if it's not economic or economic. Or political, if it doesn't affect the way we live our lives and organize our lives and in some ways the political side of our lives of, of how power is expressed. Right? And her life was committed to a vision that power and economics needed to be distributed in an entirely different way in, in our world. And, of course, there's lots of different perspectives on that, but one of the things I guess that's been one of the harshest realizations for me is that at 25 years old, I would have certainly not agreed with that comment. And at 27 or 28, I started to think, you know what? The gospel may have a lot to do with our economic and political lives. And oh my goodness, I'm surrounded by people who don't think that way. And to say that loudly might be the worst thing that I could possibly say. And so uh, I appreciate your saying that because her vision for life was confronting ugly realities. And, you know, people who come close to those realities don't always have a kumbaya experience. In many ways, it's a lonely, lonely type of experience to be deeply concerned about things that most of us kind of feel like, yeah, that's great, but I've got stuff to do, so to speak. And so it's a significant part of her life. I wanted to close us tonight with uh, a prayer. This is one of, from one of my favorite prayer books. It's called Conversations with God, and it's uh, two centuries of prayers by uh, uh, African Americans. And this comes from a um, historic Black Baptist pastor in DC. I think 19th Baptist. But let me ask you some questions before I read this prayer. This would be the kind of thing, and I hope this will happen. Uh, um, Dan, I think who who do you have next week? By the way, you're. Uh, St. Francis, so we're going to still be dealing with issues of poverty and economics. Um, But one of the things that I hope would happen in connecting you with these biographies of these heretics and uncomfortable people and people who don't always match our theology is it would dislodge us a little bit. And one of the best things that could happen in our community is that we would speak to each other and we would be uncomfortable with each other and we would be vulnerable with each other. And we would, as we say around here a lot, we would bind and loose each other. And I think at times we need to be bound by certain obligations. I think we need to hear from each other in a loving way we need to care about this more. And also we need to be loosed from time to time. There's some of you who are so committed to so many things that you probably need to be embraced by someone to say, you, you, you are able to focus on this and not do everything. So I hope that I would dislodge us in conversation. But here are four questions that I think might be interesting before I read this final prayer. Um, one is this. When you consider your life Of faith, and there are all kinds of different faith stories in this community, uh, and great ones, and different ones, and perspectives. But when you consider what really matters in your life, what is the practice element? of what really matters you know and I think that's a hard question for us as many of us are Protestants a lot of us come from an evangelical tradition but that wasn't always the question that was asked Uh, it was often and not that this is a bad question how do you feel about things but what is the practice element of your life what what is the thing that you're doing about what you think is the most important thing um, is there a portion? Here's the second question of your life, faith, your struggle with faith, that draws you into the possibility of risk, or critique, or even persecution? Um, and and jokingly, I, I did a great interview with this friend of mine. I'll, I'll I'll include this in a sermon at some point in time. He said, you know. We used to frame persecution as going out and witnessing on the school bus, you know, going into a neighborhood, and if somebody slammed their door in, in, in your face, and maybe you struggled not to keep your smile, we would call that persecution. And his it's thought was, I look back on that and think, you know what? I was privileged when I went to that door, and I was still privileged when I left the door. I'm not sure that qualifies as persecution. And I know for some of you, you've had some pretty dramatic experiences. But what aspect of your faith? draws you into risk? What makes you vulnerable to critique? Uh, Another question that I think Dorothy Day would ask us is, in what ways are we trying to change society? She felt like the gospel challenged us constantly to be changing the society that we lived in. If God mattered that much, if this vision of faith and text was so significant, then change would happen. And I know as I look around the room, there's a lot of you who would have great answers to that. But uh, how are we changing society? And then a fourth question is this. Um, What are, and this would be really fun to do in dialogue, we'll do this maybe uh, soon, is what are the key texts of your life? If you read a little bit about Dorothy Day, there weren't tons and tons of texts, but there were a few texts that she did, she held on to with a stranglehold. They were non-negotiable in her life. And what are the texts that shape your life and your faith? Uh, so if you would just uh, uh, breathe for a second pray for a second let's be silent for a second and then i will uh will close us with this prayer called in this hour by walter henderson brooks this is uh set in right at the beginning of world war ii uh, 1941 but if you would let's uh let's be silent for a second and then we will i'll read this prayer to us This is a great prayer. I'm not sure it was very popular. In this hour of darkness, guide us, thou alone our sure defense. all the worlds at war around us. Why these evils? and from whence? Thou controlest every nation. shall the earth be drenched in fire. In this day is this day a day of judgment. Nations crazed with greed and ire, nations hating one another. In their pride and haughtiness, all in each bent on destruction, in their bloodthirst naughtiness. Calm this raging sea of madness, and their senses hold men fast, lest these Babylons shortly perish, fighting, struggling to the last. Usher in the reign of reason, turn the hearts of men and women to thee, new create the sense of justice, Let mankind be one with thee. Be thyself, creation's ruler. Peace and plenty grant to all. Righteousness, each nation's glory. Blessed of thee, the great and small. Amen.
1: It's a dangerous time. Nothing more We shall live in peace So We shall overcome someday
0: I think in some way we have managed to get ourselves turned around Somehow, I think we've begun, or somehow we've come to the conclusion that Christianity is intrinsically, or by nature, a conservative movement. Now, I don't mean that in regard to how we define liberal and conservative by Republican and Democrat in our culture, because in some sense, both of those teams like Christianity as a conservative movement. But somehow, we as Christians have allowed it to seep deep into our hearts that Christianity itself is really a movement that is interested in protecting the status quo. That Christianity itself is the last bastion against some of the forces of culture that really want to run away with things. That we are the last, the last kind of hold against things like Hollywood, as if sex did not exist before the 20th century, or people did not want to get naked with one another before movies came out or as if people did not enjoy getting high prior to the 60s. And in some sense, we found ourselves thinking that Christianity is really a movement about hanging on to some type of the way in which our lives can be perfect, they can be stable, and they can be resistant to any type of change and anything that might threaten us. But in figures like Dorothy Day, we are challenged with a picture of Christianity as something different. We're challenged with a vision of Jesus. That draws us out of that sense of things are the way they're supposed to be. That paints for us a picture of what the early church saw in Christ. Which is someone who is interested in changing everything. In Dorothy Day, and I think sometimes why we have such a hard time seeing these figures is because in some sense they exist on the fringes of what we expect Christianity to look like. And existing on the fringes, they push that boundary or that limit wider than a lot of times most of us are comfortable with. Tonight as we come to the table... Having looked at the life of Dorothy Day, maybe we will encounter a Jesus who's been out walking the streets. Who oftentimes in this invitation, we come and we think, hey, the table's set, Jesus is here, great, this looks like a comfortable place for me to be. But maybe the invitation is tonight to also find ourselves going out and walking the streets. It doesn't seem to me all that hard to probably fill this place with drunkards, people on the down and out people who are in need, if we as a people begin to walk the streets of our city to find in the invitation of Christ an invitation to be hospitable to all those that we come encounter with. Tonight we're invited to a table where the graciousness of God makes that type of radical living possible. I invite you to the table tonight as those to receive the grace of God To maybe begin to paint your own picture of that type of life. These saints don't provide us with the three principles you need to make sure God is present in your life. They provide us with pictures. With little snapshots. Of ways in which we might see what it really looks like to live as Christ would live amongst us. At Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open open table, meaning all of you are invited to come break bread for one another, share it with one another, saying the body of Christ broken for you, and to pour wine or juice for one another, saying the blood of Christ shed for you. And in doing that, speaking to one another words of grace and talking with, inviting, encouraging, and challenging one another to live lives worthy of that gospel. Welcome to the table. I'm going to ask before we go to the table if we could sing the benediction song and then we'll conclude with the table tonight. Is that all right, Brett? Welcome to the table.
1: Mary Clay I will sing sing a new song.